You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Tito, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Just wanted to take note of a couple things. I am on the road quite a bit. I am fielding a lot of calls from people all over the country. I just want to say one thing. I will travel, but you'd, it'd be likely a conglomerate of people in an area if you're out of state. Typically, you want to work in the Northeast, stick to the Northeast is what I know. And that's what I would say to you if you're looking for a consultant that does this professionally. Focus on somebody that understands, you know, truly your ecoregion, what the deficiencies are, you know, what the pluses and minuses are, and able to, you know, they're able to drill into some of the, the specifics in your locality and, and give you really good, strong recommendations. Some of the recommendations that I do in parts of the country where the deer densities are a lot lower is a lot different. Like in example, my area, the Adirondack, you know, region, uh, the Adirondack plateaus, the, some of those areas is a lot different from some of the areas where there's higher deer densities. So, you know, you have to be very tactical and technical in this field. And I think a lot of people struggle, you know, when they're hiring a consultant to say, okay, you know, what's his knowledge base, what's his experience. And in this, we've provided, you know, some introduction to concepts. We've talked about, you know, building, I, I guess, better nutrition on the landscape for deer. We've, we've talked about the betterment of the, the deer in the landscape and how we progress them to the next age classes. We've talked about a di lot of different things, a lot of simple things you can do. And, you know, some of the folks in the Midwest, one of my concentrations would be on some of these big farms where you have, you know, drought issues is how are you collecting water throughout the year? Being smarter with kind of how to present that, you know, to your landscape, right? Swales, ditches, ponds, like those type of concepts and having the right volume of vegetation and the level of vegetation as a result of that will increase. There's parts of the pro uh, properties that I've worked on over the years where we've tried to improve the property for infiltration and water inclusion across the property. And the value has been so significant to the vegetation and the level of interest. And, and I'm talking specifically for white-tailed deer. So just think about that and think about your specific 
you know, issues that you may have or, you know, some of the experiences that you have. And there's a lot to learn. You know, one of the things I would say is get off these guys that are doing these YouTube channels in regards to how to build the, the top, you know, three things in the next seven days or, you know, the top three plants in your landscape. This is such a bigger, you know, landscape decision than that. It's not the top three plants. It's the top 50 plants. So let's have a broader scope of things. So just want to leave that intro to folks to start thinking a little bit differently and um, you know, I'm going to have a couple of cool podcasts coming up myself with topics and ideas and, and just things that I think about in the landscape. And I want to kind of give you a broader brush perspective on my strategy and, and how I look at the landscape and specific individual tree species, shrubs, how I do TSI projects, et cetera. So hopefully that's helpful. All right. So I got a returning guest and I told you he'd be back and hopefully he's back many more times. But Skip Sly is back here from Iowa Whitetail. So we'll get a hold of Skip and see how he's been. Hey, Skip, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. So you had a successful season. I know you shot a giant, and I know that's not the focus of the conversation today. Give, could you just give us a little history and, and how your season went? So I had, I was blessed with, and, and I'll, I'll probably continue to be blessed with mature tier for the rest of my life. I mean, I've spent 30 years kind of building my dream farms, and I farm, and it does give me a lot of opportunities that other people don't have. And I recognize that, you know, um, and when I started, I mean, getting an opportunity at a, year, at a year and a half old buck was a big deal. And sometimes I didn't even have that. So I'm really blessed. There was several bucks that I was, I was after. There was one that showed up on my farm, um, that really nobody even knew who he was, uh, chased him and he, he just vanished. And that was, it was kind of, I put all my eggs in one basket towards that deer. He vanished, and I had a neighbor down the road that had an absolute giant, too, that had a tiny chance of coming into my farm, but but pretty minimal. And both those deer just did not work out, which is how it goes. You know, you, you always hear um, the success stories of people and how this worked out. And, man, my plans came together. Well, my plans didn't come together on those deer. Um but I was fortunate enough to kind of regroup and go after another buck that I had a lot of history with. He wasn't the highest scoring deer on the farm, um, which, you know, I don't care about that, but, uh, he was old and I, he was just unique. He had a cool rack and he was seven years old and I just had history. I mean, just year after year after year and just saw him multiple times in this little core area. So I kind of changed my whole plan and went after him. And finally connected, I don't know, it was probably half a dozen hunts I had to put in for him. And got a seven-year-old, uh, really cool deer. He's, uh, I don't know, a seven by eight maybe or a six by, uh, he had a bunch of uh, stickers and trash around his bases. But just a cool buck. I, I honestly don't know what he scores. Um, and and really for me, you know, technically we're a three buck state, which is crazy for a landowner. Oh, yeah. But I just spent the rest of the season trying to get other people on um, mature deer. Uh, my son, Charlie, shot his biggest buck this year, which was also a seven-year-old. And I kind of limited him for score. Uh, but it would have been his biggest. This is his fourth buck now. Uh, and he got, a, he got a pig. I mean, it was it was a really nice buck. And then I've had buddies. Um shoot mature bucks and some bucks other people would call call bucks or management bucks but you know i found people who you know that, that might be the biggest deer they've ever shot and they're just happy as a clam to shoot them 
well, it's a win-win for me. So we've shot a lot of bucks this year off my farm that, or farms that needed to go. And we still got a little bit of hunting left. Uh, I think we've got maybe five or six still on the, the target list. Um, nothing crazy, but yeah, it was, it was just a really fun season. And overall, I would say Iowa for the 90% of the guys I talked to that are very, very serious hunters or even your casual hunters, I would call it a very, very tough season, uh, below average. And, you know, for the last five to 10 years, we've definitely, it's, it's not, it's definitely not like the, the good old days across Iowa on average, but so this year would definitely be tough. And we had some EHD and, um, we had a drought in regions and just a lot of things that were made it a little bit tougher season. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping it up here. I got 10 more days and, you know, I'm thinking of the last few bucks to go after for friends or family, or maybe a management buck. I might shoot myself. Uh, and then it's just projects after that and everything for, you know, getting back, back in the groove with habitat and everything else. Yeah. And I think we'll, I think we'll go there, you know, in a future podcast, we'll start getting into some of your detailed projects and how you approach, you know, your particular property. I, w- I want to just, you know, take note of something. You came into this property over time, right? You've hunted some really tough areas and I want people to recognize you've got a pretty diverse experience. And I, I don't want to forget about that because you've hunted really tough areas like in Michigan, which has a lot of similarities to kind of where I coexist at this point. And then obviously you've got, I don't want to say a Mecca, but you've built a property that has, you know, a lot of the aspects that you probably want as a, as a deer hunter to produce these, you know, quality deer, et cetera. So we're going to get into a controversial topic today. And I think it's important for folks to think a little bit larger. And I want to start with this one point really quick. A lot of deer uh, enthusiasts don't recognize an important aspect. And I, I really focus on this. And this is something that I've talked to my son about yesterday as we look at a deer's physical status. Now, it's a lot easier to shoot a deer and, you know, hog dress it and look at its its visceral fat or fat content on, you know, its kidneys or interior, its body, et cetera. You know, a lot of times in our, in, in our deer, you know, there's a lot of fat content on the rump, et cetera. So what I would say is you got to realize that your deer, whether it's a buck or a doe, fawn, et cetera, they're building fat reserves. And that fat reserve content is energy in their body. Their bodies are designed to digest that essentially. And Look at that as a resource. And those resources, you know, the intent of those resources to build stability over time. Now, their metabolic state does not change significantly during the winter months. So their ingestion or their level of reserves in their bodies are supposed to offset, you know, the limited amount of browse or food availability for the deer. So remember, a deer's number one resource at this very point in time, connecting all the way through the stress periods, which in my particular area are February, March, and April, those are the key months. In those instances, they're utilizing those fat reserves as their predominant food source in some capacity. Now, it's a reserve source within their body, so their body has to process it. But just understand that that is one of their primary means to survival. So when you're evaluating an individual deer, look at its physical status and health. We'll talk about an upcoming podcast. We'll talk about regenerative agriculture. We'll start to talk about some of the philosophies around cattle, some of these same philosophies and how we evaluate, you know, cattle browse, et cetera, have some similarities to tiered. There's overlaps there. So we're going to look at the landscape larger scale. But in this specific instance, I want to talk about baiting. And I've worked with clients on baiting 
and supplemental feeding. So I want to talk, I want to get your opinion on it, Skip. How, how do people approach that? You know, what do you think about that on the landscape? Is there a benefit? Is it a detriment? What's the best way to do it? So I want to get your take on just baiting and maybe get into some specifics of, you know, baits that people can use or have used. And I know in the upper uh, Michigan Peninsula, they've baiting was a big thing for years. It's been areas where I've worked in, in Ohio and parts of uh, New Hampshire, et cetera. People are baiting deer. So I want to get your opinion on baiting and just thoughts around that topic. So I would say I have a, a hybrid opinion on, on baiting and supplemental feeding. I would say I'm very much pro supplemental feeding, pro mineral, um, done correctly, done in clean ways, done in, in ways that are, you know, there's a a laundry list of things to make it done effectively and and done the right way, but I won't quite get into that. And I would say I'm, I'm very much anti baiting and there, there's definitely reasons for both. So I'll go kind of through the quick list of why I'm for supplemental feeding one. And to start out with one, I'm not a, um, I'm not a big believer in the science and CWD um, and very, very loosely to cover that really quickly. You know, do I believe that CWD exists? Sure. Do I think that it has probably been on the landscape for a long time? Yes, I do. I mean, 1960s, I think it was discovered. Um, and really the fun, if, if you trace out any, any resolution to CWD, it has to end with finding a cure, which I hope they find. I do. Or, or it ends with deer getting resistance to it, building immunity to it, able to live to long age with it, which I think is possibly already here, and treatments like humic acid, if, if that's even a possibility, which it sounds like there, there may be some, some research that suggests that is. But it, without a cure, it's all for nothing because those prions stay in the soil forever. They're moved by plant matter. They're moved by crows, coyotes. I mean, and if you depopulate all the deer there for 100 years, you reintroduce them, they're just going to get CWD again. So in, in a nutshell, I don't buy into the CWD hype, and, and I don't think there's any solution without a cure. I just don't, or resistance, like I said. So the other big thing on the landscape is – deer health period. It's a big issue. And it's a big issue when it comes to EHD. You know, that's a new disease. These serotypes that they're getting or strains are new strains of EHD. Uh, they're, they're generally migrated up from down south. They're introduced from Europe, Africa, different regions like that. And there's several different serotypes. Well, the healthier your deer are, they're going to deal with EHD more effectively. And supplemental feed you can do a multiple of things. You can do things to repel insects. You can do things to reduce inflammation. You can create a healthier immune system. You can, you can do some things that kind of mimic what some of the vaccines would do. I'm not saying they're vaccines, but you can, you can almost mimic the, the mechanism of action and, and, and what they, what those medications would were to do. Um, with supplemental feeding. So EHD is just, to me, it's a new devastating disease that I don't want to sit there and be like, yep, I put in five years worth of work, 10 years worth of work, and boom, have it flushed down the drain every every so often. And so that's why I'm very, very much for supplemental feeding. Another reason I'm for supplemental feeding is, 
you know, antler size, body size, fertility, deer health, um, down the line, there's just vast benefits. And somebody, if somebody were just to ask me, and I've seen it done on countless farms across the Midwest, if somebody were to say, does it work? Does it make antlers bigger? Does it make deer healthier? Down the line, yes, it does. Does it have downsides? Yeah, it costs a lot. Another downside is people don't, some people don't like it. Some people are like, well, it's just, um, you're treating deer like cattle, you know? And I get that. I totally get it. But, you know, I, I do think it should be a choice. And, and if it's distasteful to you, I understand that argument. I really do. I really, so I really do on any of these issues we talk about that are somewhat controversial. I understand the other side of it. And I understand people like, well, you're, you know, this guy feeds a lot. He's just a, it's, it's a rich man's sport, you know, and what we have to understand is very few people are supplemental feeding compared to the whole landscape. It's, it's less than 1%. I mean, it's 0.001% probably. Oh yeah. It's so infrequent. So, um, but, but I would say the people who are feeding, there's going to be a lot of hunters that are going to want to be around that guy's farm because he'll have healthier deer, bigger deer. Um, you know, you can probably keep deer, uh, in a, in a tighter core area. Uh, it, you know, and granted when, when it's not done during hunting season, that changes a little bit. So, so there's kind of a long winded answer on why I'm for supplemental feeding, why I'm against baiting. And I will just use baiting as the easiest, the easy, the, the one I'm against is corn piles for bait. Absolutely. If, if we just make it simple. Yep. Corn am, piles for too. bait. I am too. So, you know, once it's, once it's legal, I don't necessarily blame the hunters. I mean, to some degree I do a little bit, but you know, I blame the politicians that allowed it to pass. I blame the DNR that allowed it to pass. And, and I, I've been around bait. I've been on farms with bait. I have very good friends that utilize bait in States where it's legal. It's not in Iowa, thank goodness. And I don't, I don't demonize them. I don't think they're not hunting anything like that. Um, I understand. And, and I have a lot of friends, a lot that are like, listen, man, if I don't bait, I'm out of the game. I have to bait to compete. And it, it, it is a competition of bait piles. So, and that, that in itself is one big problem I have with bait is the vast majority of people are like, if I don't bait, I'm not in the game. That's a problem. You know? So I just go down the list of problems with baiting and we can go, we can go biological and then we can go ethical and we can go, what does it do to the dynamics of the hunting community? I mean, all those things. So the, the big one, you know, where everybody's got an opinion on baiting, I'm for it. I'm against it. It's legal. Who are you to say, you know, there's all these opinions, but, what we can't have an opinion about is the facts and the science. Now, here's what I would bottom line baiting my statement with baiting with. You cannot, and I'd like to see somebody try, but you cannot make a biological argument on why bait piles, uh, corn piles are good for deer. There is not a biological argument that is for that. Now, I can give you 10 things that have a biological argument. This is bait piles are detrimental to deer. It is destructive to deer. It is not good for it. It's not good for the ecosystem. And I'll go through that really quickly, but maybe, maybe the one 
the one biological argument for corn piles is saying, hey, deer have corn in their system. They have corn in the area, um, so they're able to digest it, which that's a big issue. If, the, if they don't have corn before, they're going to eat corn and they're going to get toxicity issues. The bacteria in their, in their gut is not ready for it. But if they, if they are able to digest it okay, I suppose it's a, it, it is adding a bit of nutrition and a bit of sustenance when they might need it. But that's about the only biological argument for it. Now, the biological arguments against it are, <laughs> it's vast. It's increased predation, increased in, I'm not going CWD here, but there is increased disease transmission, either viral or bacterial. Yep. Um, there's aflatoxins, which impacts turkeys, impacts a lot of things where, where the, the corn gets full of mold. You also have a huge issue, a monstrous issue where you put that bait on a landscape and it's artificially concentrating these deer in this tiny, tiny area. And they're going to overbrowse everything else around it. And now if, if you'd left the bait pile there till April or May, it might not be as bad, but what happens is, is, people pull that bait pile right after season and there the deer sit right when the temperatures are getting the worst for the sustained periods like January and February and March in a March and they don't have this food that was there for you know for hunting season so there's another problem so I mean there's just a host of reasons scientifically on why it's problematic hey Skip and then Skip one thing I want to just add to that bit of conversation I think it's and to kick off my earlier point is deer are not designed for baiting, meaning if you're going to supplement feed them in one capacity, it has to be a diverse blend where there are these monocrop options for deer. Again, their bodies are not designed for that specifically. So, you know, introducing it either in phases or in small increments is one thing. Again, this is like one type of bait, right? Corn specifically. But I mentioned earlier the deer are designed to build fat content in their body. And one thing I'll, I'll just pay attention to for folks like getting ready to start scouting. If you have like, um, you know, long, a large acorn crop in our area, there's a lot of Northern red Oak provides acorns at this time of year. That's going to be absolutely without a doubt, the number one food source, but they've already switched to woody browse across the landscape. So it's a combination of a lot of things in their diet you know, including starting to dig for, you know, small seedlings in the ground. I mean, they, they eat a very diverse diet that I don't think we pay much attention to all the time. And the reason I want to bring this up is they're trying to build anything in their system that either preserves or limits utilization of that fat reserve. And again, that's what their primary resource, you know, during these next few months of their, or their lives. So to think that we're going to offset or, you know, provide additional food focused area and then again you know selecting one monocrop in that example it's just a bad principle it doesn't it doesn't align with their physiology so you know i think people need to recognize like providing one food source like that in a concentrated area regardless of the disease everything like that it does not align with their well-being and you could relate the same thing to humans humans are not going to consume corn 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 and of course they are going to consider what else is in their area but the concentration of corn yeah, isn't really going to, you know, fit the bill, so to speak, for, you know, deer's nutritional health and status through those next several months, even if you are supplemental feeding. So it's got to have, it's got to be a diverse blend. So I just want to add that yeah. to the, the conversation. Yeah, I, I would say there really is no 
for lack of, of, for ease of discussion, there really is no nutritional benefits to corn piles. Just, I would almost blanket, just say that period. There is no nutritional benefits to it. It is purely to get a deer into range to shoot. And I'm not necessarily knocking that. There's a lot of people who do it. And there's a lot of friends of mine that do it, but that's really the only benefit to it. And, you know, even when I talk about supplemental feeding, Hey, I put a feeder out, I, I added mineral. That's still, it's still, it's critical. What I would say is you still have to add so many other, other elements to their nutrition, which is clearly natural browse. Cause you, you can put supplemental feeders out there all day long. Uh, and you still need to work on your brows. You still need to work on a variety of food plots. And these these aren't even food plots necessarily to hunt on. These are these are things that add to their nutrition. Vast varieties of food plots. So even with supplemental feeding, it's just a small piece of the puzzle. And what concerns me with with baiting, or even even somebody who said, "Hey, I'm just going to supplemental feed," is it's, it's kind of an easy way for people to say, well, I don't need food plots now. And I would say it hurts in that way too. So, Hey, why do I, why do I need to put in a food plot? A lot of people think, you know, I just put in a food plot to shoot something over it. I like a bay pile. And there's a whole lot of differences between a food plot and a bay pile. But, um, now there's just a lack of incentive for people to improve the timber, to improve the soil health to put a variety of different growing plants across the landscape that are beneficial uh, to all sorts of wildlife. So, you know, the bait pile creates another problem there. Um, so, and, and one other quick thing, every time I go online uh, and I see the bait pile debate, and, and trust me, I get it folks. I'm not, I'm clearly not trying to insult anybody with a bait pile thing. I don't look down upon somebody for it. I've seen it. I've been around it. So I'm not, I'm not attacking and I just want to make sure that's crystal clear. But I think the more we, we discuss this and we get a little more educated about it, I think it's better off. I really do think we're better off having some debates as hunters to say, Hey, is this the best path forward? Is it? But people will say, you know, bait piles are the same as food plots, you know, and like I have a cornfield that I'll plant. And I'll leave it, I'll leave it all year round for deer, turkeys, pheasants, whatever. Well, you know, at 40, whatever, 43,000 square feet, I need to plant probably a five acre food plot. Call it, call, call it 200,000 square feet compared to a bait, bait pile, which is 10 square feet. Clearly my corn plot is 20,000 times bigger, you know, and I mean, we can go down the line. Everybody says bait, bait piles and food plots are the same thing. They're just not. You know, a bait, a bait pile, when it's gone, I can, I can come up there and throw another pile on. They're eating at the same location over and over and over. When they go through my, my corn plot and they finish that last kernel of corn, it's gone. They're not eating at the exact same spot over and over. Now, will I admit there's some of the same same reasons for doing food plots to draw deer into certain locations. Sure. But it's not having all those detrimental effects like, like the, you know, the fungal issues that all the mold on the corn and degrading the landscape when, when it's pulled, you know, food plot done correctly. My food plots 
and what I would I would say anybody's food plot should be is a diverse amount of food where when the grain is and is finally finished around I try and make it around March maybe even April you know your clovers are coming up your winter rye is still growing the food never ends so it's never like hey the food is totally gone we're pulling the rug from under them now you're you know you got nothing to eat you're screwed we're not doing that immediately in the spring they've got clovers that are greening up and they they really do have 365 day food sources when it comes to the plots and on top of that you know my natural brows and and brows done correctly in a forest uh they're not finishing that either i mean you know you look at open timber and it might have 100 200 pounds of natural brows well you do that you manage that uh, timber properly open the canopy up let a lot of regeneration take place woody brows legumes Forbes, stuff like that. Now it's two, 3,000, maybe even more pounds per acre of natural browse. And if we want to look at, you know, bait, supplemental feed, food plots, the most nutritious thing for deer is, is their natural, their natural food sources, Forbes, legumes, and that tender woody browse. That's the most digestible, basically weeds. Weeds would probably be the most digestible nutritious food source for a deer. Um, and then you follow that with the, the tender woody brows and the forbs and legumes that come up from uh, opening the canopy up or just having a diversity of different plants on the landscape. And that is going to be one of the most critical and the most nutritious part of that deer's diet. I want to skip, I want to bring up one little topic here, and it's pretty interesting to think back. And we're talking about this time of year, right? Starting to get colder. But I want to look at like the, and, and I like how you played this out. Like, you know, I'm not concentrating deer in locations. I'm spreading things out. I'm providing additional food sources just to offset supplementally from maybe what is or isn't available on the landscape, et cetera. Just giving that diverse food option. And the one thing I want to concentrate on is we talked earlier about drought. And one thing, it's really important to recognize is, you know, when you have areas that are drought, there's stress periods throughout, you know, these different seasons. And, you know, Iowa is, is not a predisposition to not have stress periods. They have stress periods and it could be a matter of the volume of deer. It also could be a matter of the volume of food in the landscape, the combination thereof. In the, in the summer months, if your deer are experiencing drought, for example, and they have available to them food and the food is going to be in the form of leaves, right? Off, your shrubbery, for example, that that particular plant is going to provide a portion of food on the landscape. And so what I would suggest to folks, you know, start to observe is what are your deer eating and when? And it's a, it's a very simple process. You may not even need to know the plant specifically, but, you know, it's important to kind of understand, you know, what they're consuming and when. One of the things I talked about earlier is if you have a drought stressed area and the volume of food is such where you know, it's, it's low and you don't have a lot of herbaceous material or you have it only in the shrubbery. And I'm thinking of rangelands in Texas specifically. They're concentrated areas of deer interest. And what you need to do is you need to expand those out further. So your goal as a landowner should be, how do I create the most volume of food across the landscape to deconcentrate these deer to give them the most options? It's the same principle of developing food plots. Having multiple food plots in, in many locations across the landscape for supplemental feed and that diversity in food spreads these deer out. It doesn't concentrate deer. The one thing that we talked about earlier with corn piles is corn piles sometimes you know bring deer to a specific location. 
One of the arguments has been over the years is if you had multiple corn piles in many different locations, and again, I'm not suggesting that, but people do this, is you're spreading out that deer you know, interest and, and diverting deer so there isn't a high concentration. Now, what that does is it limits your opportunity potentially to focus deer in one location, but it's a good thing. It's the same thing with building bedding areas. When we're building bedding areas in the landscape, I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, bedding area, you know, A has to be here and bedding area B has to be there. The negative to doing that is you're concentrating deer again. The goal is not always to concentrate deer. It's giving the right amount of food on the landscape and in concert with building the right infrastructure for deer. But it's maximizing that to ingest and involve themselves, you know, against these, you know, various food sources. So one of the things I want to focus on is and this is what I was getting to earlier is if you're allowing water intrusion in your landscape. So I have a lot of natural natural waterways on my, my particular property. And so as this water is bubbling up, it cools the ground. So it comes out 50, you know, anywhere between 47 to 56 degrees. That's the, that's the temperature of that water. It warms the earth. And warming the earth, it creates opportunity for those plants to take up that nutrient because of the interaction between water, the water cycle and the plant. So I have very water-rich plants on my landscapes. And by the way, when it comes to woody material, this is how you take a, I'm a north slope property. This is how you take a north slope property and make it more utilized by deers. Having that layer of, like I think of a specific plant, nanoberry is the one plant that just pops into my mind. It's taking the volume of water in the landscape and allowing that plant to have access to that. That plant becomes more nutritious. They eat it at a higher rate. The, the buds on that plant are, are going to have more nutritional content because it's able to harvest the macros or micros out of that ground, and it will be ingested. And, the, again, this is, again, feeding the animal, and that's the goal out of this. Skip, I didn't mean to go sideways with you, but it's just something on my mind that I've been thinking about with, you know, how do you create these opportunities, you know, on the landscape to create high interest levels but spreading them out across the landscape so deer aren't too concentrated? And, you know, thinking on the flip side of it, you know, I've worked with clients and we've done bait sites, et cetera. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with this, not in my state specifically, but what we've done is we've used baiting against the neighbors and we can maybe talk about that later. So baiting actually hurts the neighbors hunting. We've used baiting to just disperse the deer. We use baiting to be a destination and then making sure we're moving those baiting sites at a specific interval and limiting the volume of food that's in those specific baiting sites based on the number of deer. So being very cautious or conservative on how we're putting baits, bait locations on the landscape. And, and again, not concentrating deer at a high rate, because I think that's a, that's a bad thing. And it's, it's, it's something that deer aren't designed to do. They're, they're designed to have space. They're not to be utilized like cattle in, in paddocks, right? So it's kind of weighing that kind of herd density levels against the food availability. So, all right, ran over, Skip, back to you. Yeah, um, no, that's good stuff. Uh, and, and I have to keep in mind that, you know, I, I do have a little bit of a perception of, um, the, the non-serious hunter that just wants to make things easy, that just thinks, Hey, I, I'm just going to throw a gigantic bait pile here, gig, gigantic bait pile over there. So I can just shoot deer off of it. And I got to realize that's not, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of your listeners, even so, even the ones that utilize bait, um, probably fit into that category of my buddies that are just like, listen, dude, I have to do it. If I don't do it, my neighbors do it. And, uh, it's a competition. I won't have any deer on me, stuff like that. Or they'll use it as, you know, a little bit of a tool, but it's not, it's not the only thing they rely on. So I know there's a lot of variations on how people use bait. Some of it's extremely distasteful. Some of it's, you know, it's just, it's part of the program and it's, it's just 
the reality of the situation that that area. Um, but I would say, you know, for these high forested areas, which is the Northeast, it's where I grew up in Michigan. It's even my farm in Iowa, or the farms that I've hunted across the Midwest. It's it's a lot of forest. Well, if you know, if your forests are wide open and there's there's very little browse, you know, that, that right there is something I want to address immediately. And where, where you can, like you said, you know, you go from 100 to 200 pounds of browse per acre to two and 3,000 pounds per acre, that's spreading the deer across the landscape quite a bit. Now, you know, that, that can almost be problematic where it, it, it can – gives them give them so many different areas to feed but that to me is a good thing i want an overabundance of food i want an overabundance of oak regeneration and woody browse that they can't even you know they they can't destroy completely you know i don't want them running out of that stuff so that's why i'm very aggressive with almost all of my forests making sure it's to at least some degree maximized for uh for browse and for nutrition and you know, when you look at what a deer eats, top-notch nutrition, I mean, you start aggressively getting rid of some of your your junkier trees that aren't, you know, aren't weeds or invasives like, like black locusts or stuff like that. Right. Um, and every region has different invasives that are, are problematic. But, you know, we have, um, we have hick, hickory clusters here that grow up 10, 20 times thicker than they probably should be. Well, if I top those off... And it's got these great big root systems below the soil that pop up all these new shoots. These new shoots clearly are so packed with nutrition, minerals, protein content. It's it's uh, it's crazy. I mean, some of that uh, protein content is close to soybean protein content. I mean, it's massively nutrition, phosphorus, all 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 the macros and micros. So, you know, that in itself is nutritious. Like guys will go out and rightfully so, they'll be like, "Hey, I plant." Uh, dogwoods the deer love to browse it well a lot of times they end up killing it which but they are it's really nutritious but really there's a lot of trees on your landscape that you might not put any value on that if those are able to send up shoots i mean that's massive nutrition right there so um you open up that canopy and granted there's other things you got to consider like invasives and and some of the stuff that can be problematic but you open up that canopy and start topping off some of the the rightly selected trees um and there's just going to be such a different variety of of stump growth to forbs legumes to you know 50 to 100 things probably that are in that deer's diet that they're going to eat and you don't even need to even know exactly what they're eating uh just realize that they're probably eating 20 30 40 50 different things and they're selectively going around and browsing a little this and a little that and when you open that canopy up and you're creating a lot of that stump growth and and all that new sunlight coming in, the, just the tonnage per acre is just enhanced so greatly, and thus your your deer's nutrition and um, and how well your deer do size antlers everything about it is just going to be far superior. And then down the list of other benefits, fawning cover, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, it's just I would call TSI timber stand improvement. I'd call it like killing eight or 10 birds with one stone. There's so many benefits to it when it's done correctly. Yeah. And I think it's keeping the right trees. And, and one thing I talked about earlier was just referencing Annaberry, which isn't a high preference, you know, plant for deer becomes more preferential when it has the right amount of sun 
and related moisture content, right? Because it can harvest kind of the nutrient availability. It's thinking opposite where one of the examples, one tree that's like literally completely overlooked here is yellow birch. Yellow birch is highly browsed by deer, seedlings specifically. And that's a tree that is typically a call tree, a tree that we try to get rid of because it's low economic value. But it's looking at the individual tree, a part of this discussion and saying, okay, you know, what's its production value? You know, how, how can we promote it in the landscape? And obviously, what, it's, what is its benefit? And having a diversity in age class, too, I think that's really important. So you do have seed sources. I see folks going and like, okay, I heard that, you know, aspen regeneration is, you know, the ultimate interest of deer, right? They, they browse an aspen, you know, f- you know, basically a full year plant, essentially. So in those examples, they'll go in and they'll just clear cut, you know, an entire aspen source without focusing on, well, what's its regeneration ability? And it, and it just can't be from root shoots, right? It has to, you have to look at new available seeds, right? New sources, cross-pollination. Some of these plants are monoculous, right? So they have a female and male cactus. They can produce seed, right? They produce their own seed source, essentially. So you need to think about, you know, some of that on the landscape. The other piece I want to just pay attention to is species selection. So when we're starting to look at different species across the landscape and their food value, we're starting to put a number to that. And it, it may not always be a number. To Skip's point earlier, like he was starting to get down the road where you're, you're starting to look at your landscape scale for food and it's seasonal food. So what is your amount of woody browse this time of year? So one of the recommendations I've said on this podcast several times is, are, do you have at least 30 to 40% in woody material that's available to deer that they're interested in? And what you'll find on most properties, pretty much 99% of the properties that I work on, you don't hit that threshold. In order to get to that threshold, the volume of cutting and maintenance is very, very high. Some of these areas that you can't burn, what happens is the ability to reset those areas after a certain interval of time becomes more difficult. So if you don't have the burning option, what you're going to have to do is mechanically, and I'm not talking about foliar sprays, I'm just talking about running a chainsaw. So one of my recommendations is when you're cutting timber and you're starting to make a decision on every single tree you're going after, that chainsaw does not start stop running. One of the recommendations, this is even in hedgerow management, is you're cutting every single species that you can at a certain height and level to get that regeneration opportunity. And we're talking a lot of times it's stump sprouts, but it's becoming a food source for those deer. So that chainsaw should not stop running. Know your species before you cut them. Know the benefit of the you know to the wildlife specifically, and you'll be amazed at you know what deer actually are inclined to utilize. And again, to Skip's point earlier, some of these stump sprouting options you know tend to be you know highly nutritious and available to deer you know, during certain times of year. And this is the time of year beyond just kind of leaf out where if there's any you know woody tips or woody browse material that's in a local area that deer can concentrate in. And again, you want these you know inside your bedding areas. You want these external to your bedding areas. I mean, you want to talk about being able to outcompete a soybean, which is high in carb, which converts well to fat for the deer right now, is if you have a large clear-cut area that meets this 30 to 40% of woody material, I can tell you in my area northeast, I'll have that any day over a soybean food plot. Just because I know the volume of cover, the security, the high-pressure hunting around here, the value to that versus soy soybean plot is much less. You can design soybean plots to be more, I'll say, a pressure adverse so they don't feel so much pressure they're not they're not exposed to these open areas you know significantly enough where they're going to feel exposed but that's a design philosophy and that rec- a lot of money and mechanical movement where this is just running the chains all the time so it's it's a time commitment thing skip that i think people struggle with and i'll be honest with you i don't have you know the, the amount of time that i want to dedicate to my my small acreage i couldn't imagine how you you know, manage a large project like like you have it on your property so I've done 
thousands and thousands, I mean, tens of thousands of acres of timber stand improvement yeah. at this point. Uh, nobody's going to do that. Um, and I mean, I've owned hundreds of farms. I've just done a ton. So, but the reason I say that is because I see most farms where nothing is done. Right. And most guys have, Hey man, I've got a 40 with 20 acres of timber or an 80 with, you know, 50 acres of timber. Maybe it's all timber. You know, the, the reality for those folks is just go out there and start, um, you know, get, clearly get a forester, get a consultant, get a private forester, whatever, get somebody like you out there who really understands the tree species, the goals and how to create diversity within that, that timber stand where, you know, we're not doing the one thing across the whole thing. I mean, it's going to vary in, in very short amounts of distance based on the species of trees, based on the terrain, based on the goals. We want changes in that timber, but get the right person out there and, execute the plan and if it takes you five years to get through that whole thing so be, that's fine if you go out there and you just spend a day chainsawing and you're just concentrating on some you know some junkier quality trees that really aren't doing any damage by being cut you're still way ahead of the game because what we got to keep in mind is 99.9 percent of the acres out there nobody's doing a thing they're doing very little and maybe the timber stand improvements caught on a little bit more. And if you're in like a, a deer management neighborhood, maybe some timber stand improvements going on, but still, I mean, in Iowa where it's, you know, deer manager central and uh, below my house here, I mean, most of the land I go on, they're still doing nothing or guys will do just a little and they won't touch it. They will never touch it again. So just start doing something. And every year, if a guy were to say, Hey, you know, I don't want to get overly aggressive with this, but I, I went through a plan and then every year I'll touch it up or I'll change this or I'll open up a new section over here. And you spend a half a day, a day, a few cha a tanks of gas. You're making progress and you're keeping constant change in that forest. So um, timber stand improvement is a topic that overwhelms people. It's very complex. And that's why to make it simple, get an expert out there. And a lot of times the, the state foresters will do this for free. They'll help you write a plan. Well, just start executing on that plan with some expertise, really understand your tree species. Take a little book out there. I mean, that's how I learned decades ago. I yep. had a little book with me yep. um, and just understand, Hey, these are, you know, the five trees in my region that I have no problem cutting. You know, there's, I'm not going to damage a thing by cutting these. And these are the five tree species that, man, I really want to protect these and make sure I promote these and don't cut them, you know, so you're not making mistakes and just, just start there. And then, and then it just becomes a safety issue past that, you know, don't cut things that are huge. Don't, if you're not experienced with a chainsaw, don't get uh, carried away, you know, cut smaller stuff, double girdle things. If you're, if there's safety concerns, wear all your safety stuff on, down the list. But yeah, I mean, Timber sand improvement, there really is, uh, I mean, I, I could probably think of 10 different benefits. Uh, and and it's, it's why it's probably the number one thing I do on my farm. Now, there's no there's no activity on a farm where you're like, if you do this, you're going to have a, the greatest farm. I mean, there's multiple things. There has to be, and that's why, you know, a food plot, I put a soybean plot there. That's It's just one tiny component, you know, or I did timber sand improvement. That is 
Well, that's a big component. That's a big one. But there has to be all these different components and all these different diverse tactics put on any, even, even, even like a 20 acre piece of timber, you know, you're not going to go across that whole thing and do the, the, do it all the same way across the whole thing. So, you know, diversity in your practices, um, and just realize there's not, there's not one stone that's just going to fix everything, uh, is probably a reality people need to grasp. But, um, anybody listen to this, if you have not done timber stand improvement, you need to start learning that process and you need to execute that plan. Uh, and that would be first on my list period for anybody out there. Yeah. And I, I agree with you, skip a hundred percent. And I know you've done other podcasts on that and hopefully maybe that's something we can, we can hit on next because we ended up going down that road. The other piece of this is we talked a little bit about disease transmission today, baiting, supplemental feeding. Um, my kids are running around doing a nerf war right now. Hey, that's what my kids are doing. I hear them upstairs like maniacs. (laughs) And the other piece of it is having some real strategy behind these things. You know, I brought up some things where we've used, again, baiting against the neighbors and putting, you know, again, bait piles to distract the deer, to delay movements. I mean, there's some things you can do that are really practical that may help your hunting. But I think if you need to think about beyond your hunting, most of the guys that hire me, their end result, is they want to have that big buck on the wall. And some people are blessed with more opportunities than others and and thankful for that. Some people are just lucky. But the smart person, the person that has real wisdom, is the person that recognizes baiting's not going to get you there. And the other piece of this is recognizing the small increments of change that you can make on your landscape. To Skip's point earlier, where you're, you're kind of biting, you know, one bite of the apple at a time and taking pieces of the pie and making it make sense. It's okay to go in and just develop a property, maybe not even with hunting in mind. And I think the distraction of hunting in our end game of getting something. Somebody was offended recently with, uh, I made a recommendation and I actually got two emails about this. I said, don't hunt your property for two years and observe. And somebody's like, well, I bought the property. I said, well, let's see how the changes impact the deer in a positive or negative light. Go get other options. You got you have resources. You're not short of money. Go lease land. Go hunt public land. Right? Travel around the world. People have opportunities to do other things. Taking the time to observe and seeing what the impact of your changes are without your, I guess, your involvement could be huge. And, and I meant like involvement from a hunting situation. But taking the time to make many different changes in the landscape. The one thing I'll say is if you have a forest stand and you want to plant trees, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me when trees are already existing. Use your resources. The time it takes to some of these other, to have these plants develop to become a resource for your deer takes a really long time. I'm not saying change the composition of your landscape with planting trees. I'm not saying don't do that. What I'm saying is leverage the resources you already have at your fingertips. If you don't know how to approach these things, if you have vernal pools and you know how to manage vernal pools for upland uh, species, then start focusing on, you know, what can I do to make this better for deer? You know, and, and there's strategies around those type of things. You know, vernal lands adjacent to wetlands, you know, upland areas where there's a lack of diversity. It's actually having a plan for each one of these segments of your property where you're going to get the bang for the buck. And recognize this, when you start making these bigger global scale changes, it's not just individual species like deer focus, it becomes ecosystem focus. And I think why Skip is so... Uh, well, I don't want to say successful because you're a little bit beyond the su- success point. You're at an elite level, and, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, Skip, but you're at a level beyond most people. Is the extremity or the extremeness that you go to to improve the landscape, 
thousands of acres cutting timber, that type of experience, and you've seen the gains from that, and that's more meaningful than planting a corn plot or putting in a bait pile. And so I think once you start seeing the results and observing those things, you'll want to do these things. It's the, it's the guy that I go consult on, and I'm like, I'm going to get the deer to bed in this location. And the next question is, why are they going to bed in this location? And it's like 15 different reasons. And they're like, oh, okay, it's not just wind. It's not just pressure. It's food sources. It's the cover type. It's, it's looking at the big scale pieces of this puzzle and making it make sense. So I just want to end on my end is saying, you know, I think this is a bigger scale conversation. And we started at bait and we ended in TSI. But I think yeah. looking at your landscape, yeah, I mean, you know. You know, I, I started uh, hunting public land where I didn't see any deer for a week and I saw all hunters. And I remember one year uh, my mom helped my brother and I lease a five acre piece of timber. And we maybe saw one, one buck the whole season. Um, so, you know, I understand the extreme bottom of what hunting is like, uh, and, and the toughest conditions out there. And I also can, you know, and I'd be like, man, it kind of was a drag, but at the same time, it, it got me into hunting. It captivated me. Um, and on the other extreme, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is what I do. I have, I farm and I'm, I'm on my farms every day. Uh, and I took it to the absolute extreme. I, I don't expect anybody to be like that. And, and, and I don't say that to even talk about myself. What I say is I want to, to take what's in my head and help people with, uh, the 20 acre farms or the 40 acre farms, or even if they've got permission to do some things where it's going to leave the environment a better place. It's going to be, uh, it's going to hold so many more deer. I mean, you know, there's 80 acre parcels. I'll see that at best, maybe there's one mature buck out there, uh, when somebody starts, well, you know, if you enhance that property, right. Uh, you hunt it right. You you set the habitat up right. I mean, you can have some of these properties. You can have two, three, maybe even four mature bucks down the road. I mean, the carrying capacity on mature bucks. I'm not saying they live there the whole time on 80 acres, but the amount of mature bucks there is enhanced so greatly. So there's all this opportunity for other people, for anybody listening, to have such a better experience than you know wh- where they found a property compared to what it could be. Um, and, and I want to see that expressed across the landscape. I mean, I don't have a selfish motivation in this or, or an ego involved in this at all. I just want to see other people enhance their farms, have more opportunities, hold more deer, have healthier deer, um, have bigger deer. And, you know, loosely, last, last thing I'd just add to that is, you know, the more you can make your farm where, hey, there's a big buck that lives on my farm, that that should be your goal, more more older deer that live on your farm as opposed to, Hey, I want a big buck to go to this spot past my tree stand. I mean, that's a, that's a, a focus that should be secondary, third, whatever. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of areas of my farm or a lot of things I do on my farm that have nothing to do with me hunting them. It has nothing to do with, with me changing the deer movement. And, and no doubt I like to do that. I like to strategize and I like to get them to go to certain areas. I like that, but, but it's a, it's not my first focus. My first focus is making a making my farm so mature bucks want to be there and making it so it can hold more mature bucks. And there's absolutely every single farm I've owned, every single farm I've been on, the amount of mature bucks, not just from trigger management, but from habitat, keeping them safe, uh, giving them year-round food, 
you will have mature, more mature bucks and more opportunities if you are setting your farms up. So, so more uh, clearly more mature bucks want to be there as opposed to just saying, what can I do to this farm so I can shoot the deer so I can get them next to me so I can, you know, get a crack at them. You know, that's, that's far down the road. So I just want to make that distinction. I I, I love that. And I love that we're going to end with that because I, I think that means a lot. And, And this is why, this is why I have a job, right? What you just said is why I have a job. So it's unfortunate to me to hear folks saying, this is a bigger picture thing. You can get there. I've proven it over and over again, and I've just done the right things in the timber, and I've been able to manage it in a way where I'm seeing the results. And so, you know, getting to that point where you're productive and you're seeing more mature deer, or just deer for that matter, for a lot of folks that don't have, you know, high deer populations, is just a win, 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 win. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate you, Skip. I appreciate you taking time with me today. Um, I, I would love to just talk to you for hours about this stuff, but you know, this our- stuff could go on. This stuff could go on for months. You could have a three month long podcast. I mean, I've done this for 20, 30 years. And like, as we get off the phone here, like I'm hopping into my car and I'm going to go down to my farm, get some work done on, on one farm that I'm done hunting. I mean, and, and to anybody listening to this, I mean, there's nothing you're, you're never going to have all this stuff mastered in six months or a year or two years. I mean, you know, this is, this is decades and, and I'm not done learning. I mean, I, I, I've seen what I think is I've seen pretty much everything, but I'm, I'm learning stuff every year. Um, but there's some substantial gains anybody can have in just one year, you know, one year of learning the basics of TSI, just the basics or the basics of this food plots or, or learning some mistakes. I mean, just doing that is so worthwhile. Um, and you know, just one year at a time, little strides, little moving the ball forward, even if it's two steps forward, one step back, that's just fine. So, um, yeah, I'm about ready to leave right now and, and get to work myself. All right, and that tells you one thing. Start working, folks. I mean, it's hard work pays off. It's not things like baiting. It's it's actually starting the plan now and get moving. And uh, if you don't know where to start, keep listening because there will be more information down the road here to get you going. All right, Skip, thanks for the time. I appreciate you, and uh, talk again soon. Thanks for having me. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.